you should have an outline there that says grace for the desperate. Grace for the desperate. Patricia is 35 years old. She is married uh, with no children. Uh, her husband has been unemployed for some months, and life has been very difficult for Patricia and her husband. The joblessness has actually worsened uh, um, the husband's depression, <laughs> a subject which my brother Nick just touched on briefly, and uh, Pastor Reagan will be talking to us about. A couple of years ago, the husband attempted suicide, so now that they are in this situation, Patricia is very concerned that old problems uh, may come back. Zara is 40 years old. Uh, she professed faith in Jesus when she was 18 years old. Uh, but over the last five years, uh, her, uh, her life has been a constant struggle. Yeah, you see Zara battles a secret addiction to alcohol. Uh, she says, I feel miserable. I have backslidden for years. Uh, I don't want to, uh, this addiction, I don't want to sin, but, and I but, but I can't help it. I can't go on anymore. Jeremy is 34. Uh, over the years, he has lost members of his family through cancer. Uh, his personal health is failing. And not long ago, he lost his job. And he's struggling with all of this. Uh, he also just cannot take it anymore. And so to numb his pain, he spends a lot of time uh, trying to escape that situation. He spends a lot of time watching television, uh, playing video games and that sort of thing, meeting up with people, anything to numb the pain that he's in. These are three real people, actually, facing different situations. But they're all wrestling with one question when you think about it. Where can I find the answer to my problems? Patricia, Zara, and Jeremy are not alone, actually, in that question. All of us, in some way, we find ourselves in a particular situation where we are looking for answers. And some of us are perhaps interested in knowing the problem to our health situation we find ourselves in. Others of us feel anxious or we just feel a deep, deep feeling of emptiness about life. For others, it is relational problems they may be facing. Others, they say, as they look towards the future, they see the future is so uncertain, so full of problems, and that they are asking for answers in that area. For others, it's a sin that they just can't shake off. They're trying, but it's not working. I wonder, as you sit here this evening, where are you searching for answers? And how are you... Have you found the answer? If we looked at a video of your life, would it tell us not only about where you're searching, but whether you've actually found the answer? Would it tell us who you are trusting in to help you through that, or what you're trusting in? Well, if you are a true follower of Jesus, I wonder, what would the video reveal about you? Would it reveal that you are trusting in yourself? Or would it reveal actually that you are trusting in Jesus as your answer? It's a very interesting question. Not your words, but just if we, video, we saw a video without words, so to speak. A soundtrack of your life. 
would, would, would either, if non-believers are looking at your life, would they say that, yes, we can see he's struggling with this issue, but he's concluded that the only answer to his life is Jesus. Not because he attends church, we know. We, we see it just in everything he does. I wonder. It's a question to ask ourselves. Or would they say, actually, you've concluded that the answer is in your job? Or your answer is in other things, family, or other things? Would, it's, a, it's a very challenging question. Would they conclude that perhaps the answer is in ministry and serving in church as the answer, rather than the answer being in Jesus? It's a, it's a very important question to ask ourselves. Well, my goal this evening is to encourage you to put your whole faith in Jesus in whatever situation you find yourselves in. Not just now, but going forward. And I want to do this by, as we continue in Mark 2, so please turn with me to Mark 7, uh, verse 24 to verse 30, because I think this is the, perhaps, I think it's the most exciting encouragement uh, so far in Mark, uh, that we can find the answer to the question, uh, or where should we go for, for answers? And the answer is Jesus. And we will see why Jesus is the answer in this passage. And there are just three observations I just want to make, which are uh, on your outline. The first thing is Jesus, of course, as I said, is the answer to our desperation. Whatever situation we are in, Jesus is the answer. So, look at verse 24 there. The, Jesus and the disciples are living in Gennesaret. That's where they are. They were. And this is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And they are now headed north deep into pagan territory. They are leaving Galilee now. Look at verse 24. And from there, from Gennesaret, he arose, him and his disciples, we know from Matthew, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Where are we now? Well, Tyre and Sidon today is southern Lebanon. So that's basically where they are. They are in southern Lebanon. This is a non-Jewish area. It's an area very well known, the Prophet Ezekiel talks about Tyre and Lebanon. The prophets prophesy against Tyre. Uh, Tyre. These are regions that are very well known to Jewish people. They, they are gentile areas. That's where Jesus is going. And he's going there to rest, I think, uh, because it's been getting hectic, of course, but he's taking a bit of time with the disciples to rest. And interesting enough, he's chosen to rest in a pagan's house. Did you pick that up in verse 24? And he entered a house, a pagan's house, and did not want anyone to know. Yet it could not be hidden. This is interesting. It's not by accident that Jesus is going into a pagan's house. Why? Because if you were here this Sunday morning, which all of you were, you'll notice that Jesus made it very clear, right? That nothing from the outside can make us unclean. So deliberately now, he's going to live out that sermon, right? By, he's living it out by entering a pagan's house. And perhaps he's been eating there. Because he knows nothing from the outside contaminates us. And we can imagine that even before our Lord Jesus enters this house, and just as he enters this house, even before he has time to 
to sit down to a cup of Tyrian or Sidonian coffee, uh, the local paparazzi are already on the scene, aren't they? Because the word is out. Jesus is in town. And we know from Mark chapter 3 that the people of Tyre and Sidon, Mark chapter 3 verse 7 to 11, the people of Tyre and Sidon had actually come to get miracles from Jesus during that passage. So he's well known in this area. And as he arrives, they've been perhaps expecting him to visit them. And they're just so excited. And he can't be hidden. And it seems a woman has picked up, if you like, is in the know. She's picked up the gossip that Jesus is around and she's there already knocking at this house uh, 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 where he's staying. Let's read on um, verse 24. 24, The middle of 24 there we just read says, And he entered the house and did not want anyone to know. And yet he couldn't be hidden. Everybody is excited to see him. Verse 25, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile. She's a pagan. A Syrophoenician by birth. Now we need to notice one important point here. When Jesus says she fell down at his feet. We know from the record in Matthew chapter 15 verse 22. That what is going on here is that this woman has come. And she's weeping. Crying. That's what it means. She's not just Falling down at his feet like that. She's actually in tears before Jesus. She's crying before Jesus for help. And we know that from Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. Now, I don't know the last time you poured out your heart and tears to a brother or sister. You must have been feeling pained about something when you were crying or something. I can't remember last time I did that, sadly. But I'm sure I was feeling pain and tears. I'm feeling pain in my heart. And I'm guessing at that moment you may have been, you were crying. You probably felt a bit embarrassed about crying in front of someone. And you probably said, sorry, sorry. After you cry, you say, sorry, I couldn't help it. We tend to apologize, don't we, for our tears when we unexpectedly cry in front of someone that we haven't got to know deeply very well. Okay. If you cry in front of your wife, you never apologize. That's quite normal. If the wife cries in front of the husband, there's no need for apologies. Uh, you just pour out your heart. If the child cries before the parents, the, the child doesn't apologize for those tears. But usually when we're in a situation in which the other person, we don't know them very well. We know them, but we, we're not yet perfectly as good as we would like. We usually apologize a bit, don't we? We feel a bit of a sense of embarrassment. And we know that the other person also feels a bit pained by our situation. And it's a bit awkward. If you're British, I would imagine this is a bit worse. It's, it's difficult to handle those sorts of awkward situations. And in some sense, as this woman now comes before Jesus crying, begging, uh, we, ex- we, 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 we expect this woman to feel embarrassed a bit as she cries before Jesus. Not just because it happens to, it's, it's similar to our culture, but it's also because it's different. You see, in this culture, it is a no-no crying before a man who is not your husband. It shouldn't happen. Suddenly, also, not a, somebody who's a stranger, somebody you never met, you know, she's not meant to be doing this. What she's doing is repulsive. And we know from Matthew that the disciples themselves find it deeply embarrassing what she's doing. And she, they even try to push her away at this point. 
But this woman is not ashamed of doing this. She has a problem bigger than worrying about her pride. Our little princess is facing an attack from another world. Mark says satanic forces are demonizing a child who she's left at home. We're going to come back to that theme of how demonic, I mean, it's going to sound, how satanic Satan is to demonize innocent little girls, little boys. We'll come back to that in chapter 8. But the point I just want to make here is that many of us know what it feels like when our child or grandchild becomes unwell. We feel like we are at the end of the road, don't we? But I cannot even, as a parent, I cannot even imagine what it must be like to know your daughter is in the grip of Satan, your little child, with demons completely taking all of our fragile minds. Can you imagine what that must feel for this woman? To know Satan has completely taken over this fragile body. It must be so shocking. It must be shocking for a mother because to know that means she's also partly terrified even of the child. Because you are aware of the situation she's in. So we can understand why she's crying before a total stranger, why she's not embarrassed. Why? Because she's desperate for answers. She's tried everywhere. And Jesus is the only one who can help her, she's concluded. She believes only this man, Jesus, can help her. And so she's intensely begging for help. She believes Jesus has a power greater than Satan. He can drive Satan away. And is there any problem you have in your life right now that's bigger than Satan? Just name it. What problem are you facing in your life that is bigger than Satan? There's no other problem bigger than Satan. There isn't. Because Satan is a source of all the problems. Anyone who can sort out Satan can sort out any problem. And she's seen Jesus from Mark chapter 3, verse 7 to 11, casting out demons. And she believes, she's heard those stories perhaps, and she believes Jesus has a power greater than Satan. And Jesus has a power greater than Satan. Jesus has power over any problem we are facing in our life. There is no problem Jesus can't deal with. This is what this woman believes. And this is what we must believe. The question is, do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus is the answer to your worries? And I just want to narrow the application today on this. Because this is about worrying about our family, isn't it? This is what this woman is facing, the situation. She has problems in her family that are beyond her. And the question is to do with the child. And some of you here are parents. The question Jesus perhaps is posing, this text is posing, is do you believe Jesus can deal with the problems you are facing as a parent. Your child perhaps is out of control in some area, or you're struggling to discipline them in some sense. Do you believe Jesus is the answer there? Your child is probably unwell. Do you believe Jesus is the answer there? Perhaps your child has no problem, but you are longing for a better future for the child. Do you believe Jesus is the answer. Did I say the problem? The answer. (laughs) Right? Do you believe Jesus is the answer for your child? That's the question. 
You are expecting, yes, a child down the line. Do you believe Jesus is going to be the answer to that child for everything the child will long for, we want? You are concerned, how do I look, how will I raise my child in this world with so much gender, this gender, that, what's going on? Well, the question is, do you believe Jesus has power over Satan in this world? And that's the question this passage is asking. And more widely for us, who have just families in general. There are so many concerns we have in our families, isn't it? And this passage is asking that question, do we believe Jesus can look after the problems in our families? Are you bringing to Jesus all your frustrations of not being able to do everything you'd like to do for your family? That's another question, isn't it? Here is a mother who has longings for a child to be raised up better, but the life situation has constrained her capacity to look after a child. As a parent, I often feel like well, I always feel I need more help, <laughs> right? And all of us find ourselves as, 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 as parents, those of our parents here, knowing that doing things for our family is, well, impossible. But are we looking to our job? Are we looking to, our, to the church? Are we looking to society to deal with those things? Or are we looking to Jesus as the answer for our family? This passage asks these difficult questions. So if your child has problems at school, is the answer you doing more or you looking to Jesus and Jesus directing you to be better in terms of how you do that? See, the woman's problems are beyond her and she knows Jesus is the answer. Do you? Well, the answer is we should know Jesus is the answer. All of us, of course, know that simply knowing Jesus is the answer doesn't necessarily mean for us that we have full confidence that you he will help us. We know intellectually, some of us, that Jesus is the answer, but we don't always have full confidence Jesus will help us. And there's a good reason for that, because all of us here know powerful people. Um, I'm sure you do. I'm sure, I'm sure you know a celebrity. Well, you might not know, but let's just imagine you know somebody who's a, who has some power in this country. Perhaps, what, you know your local MP, don't you? I mean, you can go in and see him, right? Or her. But the fact that you know the local MP is there doesn't mean you're full confidence the local MP can do something about your situation. Because just knowing people is not enough. We have to have confidence that those people we know can do things. I know this from the workplace, actually, from the world of work. Sometimes we can unburden ourselves to a superior, like maybe a head of department or something. And we pour out our hearts to them and say, look, my friend is, you know, my colleague is bullying me. Can you do something about it? I really want this resolved. And we go to them, well, they hear us for a while, but then afterwards we just met with skepticism. Nothing happens. In fact, the situation even gets worse. So we've learned from such situations in life of trusting people in power who don't actually, in the end, deliver for us. And the danger for many of us is that when we think of Jesus and his power, we have natural skepticism, don't we? Jesus is powerful. Is he really powerful for me? I, I know he's powerful, but I'm just one of billions of Christians, or millions of Christians, or hundreds of millions of genuine Christians. Emma does, he must be busy with the, with, with the stuff that's going on in China, than me here, right? We, we may feel like that. 
So there's this gap between knowing him intellectually and knowing him experientially. And so as we come to this passage, we must ask ourselves, are we only knowing Jesus intellectually? And the answer here is that we shouldn't just know him intellectually. We can actually trust Jesus experientially. We can know Jesus really does care about us because Jesus is full of grace. He wants to use his power for us. And we see that as a second point here. So Jesus can be trusted to help us, not only because Jesus is powerful, because Jesus is God showing grace to the undeserving. Jesus is God showing grace to the undeserving. So let's go back to the woman there. You see that she's crying before Jesus. Now, we see that in verse 26, right? She's crying before Jesus. Now the woman was a gentle seraphim. Phoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. From all that you know of Jesus, what do you expect to happen now? Jesus is a heavenly doctor who always answers the call. And at this point, the immediate thing you expect Jesus to do is to respond. That has been the case. I mean, he's been walking around, people have been touching him, he's not pushing them away. You don't even expect Jesus to say anything more other than... Go your way, the daughter is healed. Because that's vintage Jesus. That's the Jesus we have seen. But to our shock, Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he responds with his most politically incorrect parable yet. Right? You have never heard this parable in Sunday school. Let's read it in verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She has come with high hopes of getting healing for a demonized child. And Jesus offers her a parable. The question is this. Will she be offended or will she understand this parable? Is this woman going to be the first person in Mark who gets a parable by Jesus? The disciples are not getting Jesus' parables. And here now is the parable. This is a test. Does she have true faith or not? Is she going to take what Jesus says to mean? Jesus finds her as offensive to be around her because she's a Gentile, as Jews generally find offensive being around dogs. Will she, Jesus as a Jewish man speaking, and be actually offended by what he has said? Or will she see that Jesus loves non-Jews? That is why he's in pagan land, in this pagan house. And that actually this parable Jesus is speaking is Jesus entering our world using our language. Will she see that? Will she see that Jesus is identifying with her? Because as a pagan, it is normal for her to keep dogs. To keep these puppies, actually. That's a word for dogs that Jesus uses here. Who should see that? That actually this parable is more about our world than Jesus' Jewishness. Well, she does. She gets the parable. And she is not offended by the parable. In fact, she becomes the first woman, the first person in Mark to understand the parable. And she reveals in her parable because she sees Jesus has entered our world. Look how she responds. But she answered him and said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table, the dogs in pagan houses, 
in houses of pagans. And even the dogs, the puppies, under the table, eat the children's crumbs. She understands that Jesus is not pushing her away. Rather, Jesus is making it clear that he has not come here because he has abandoned Israel. No, he is still the Jewish Messiah. He is still the Messiah of Israel. He will still sit on David's throne. His mission is still, as Paul says, is the gospel is first to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. The woman gets this. And she's saying to Jesus, yes, I know. I don't even deserve to be in the queue. I don't deserve you. You shouldn't even be in pagan land offering help. But I am asking you, not as a right, I am asking you, I'm asking for your grace. Yes, I am a dog, but I want to be your dog. She is pleading to Jesus to pour grace on her. And Jesus unloads buckets of sensational grace on her, he just unleashes it, he pours it out on her. Look at verse 29. And he said to her, for this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Just like that. And we are told in verse 30, and then when she went home, she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. You see, by healing this little girl, Jesus is demonstrating that he has power over Satan. And it again reminds us that this miracle is demonstrating that God is living among us in the person of Jesus. God has arrived and is in pagan land. But more than that, this miracle, remember, is for a pagan little girl lying demonized on bed. It is teaching us that Jesus is come to show undeserved mercy to those who are far from God. This is the key to understand what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says to the woman, for this statement you may go your way, he is saying, you get it. <laughs> you know why I've come in this world. My mission, yes, begins with the Jews, but it is not just for the Jews. I've come for any sinner who have faith in me. I am building a kingdom of lost sinners regardless of background. All sinners are welcome into my kingdom. The poor, the outcasts, the gays, the murderers, the prostitutes, the pagans, abusers. If they repent, they will come in because my kingdom is not of this world. It is an upside kingdom. Now, think about what's going on here. Immediately you realize this, this encounter is not by accident. Jesus came for this woman. He came to bring grace to this woman. He left Galilee for paganism because he loves this woman. He loves all sinners. And we know this because this story, friends, is a picture of what Jesus does two or three years later when he gets to Jerusalem. You see, in Jerusalem, Jesus is betrayed by sinners, mocked by sinners, flogged by pagan sinners. And his bleeding body is nailed to the cross by pagan sinners. And on that cross, Jesus is crucified, isn't it? Among sinners. And on that cross, Jesus dies not just among sinners, 
but for all sinners who put their faith in him. Every blow of that hammer on Golgotha against the, ne- against the hands of Jesus. Jesus is being pierced for sinners. He's taking on every hammer for us, for repentant sinners. Every blow is Jesus welcoming us home as he takes it in. Every insult Jesus is taking from that watching crowd on Golgotha as he dies on the cross is for repentant sinners, Jews and Gentiles. It is Jesus taking on the pagan shame, the Gentile shame. It is last breath on that cross when he cries out, it is finished, is for us. Because when he says it is finished, Jesus is answering the most important question that all of us have. Perhaps it's the most difficult question we're asking. And the question is this, how can I live with God? All your problems are narrowed down to this one. How can I live with God? Because if you have God, your problems are solved. How can I have access to his peace and infinite resources? That's the question we're all asking. I know you're worrying about what sort of job I should have next month? But really, that all of we use the Sigma sign in mass, isn't it? The summation of all of these problems is in this man, Jesus. It comes down to that question: How can I live with God? And the answer is the cross. The cross is God looking at you. That's what the cross is. Do you realize that? As Jesus hangs on that cross, is there his Christ? Where is Jesus looking? As his Dying there on the cross. He's looking at you. The cross is Jesus looking at you, not with eyes of judgment, but the cross is Jesus looking at you with eyes of grace. The cross says to us, we find answers to all our questions in life in the crushing of Jesus on the cross. In grace displayed in Christ. We find answers in those nailed hands. Because through the cross, Jesus, God is now with us. You see, to have God in our lives through Jesus is amazing. Because it's you walking around with the answer in your pocket. It's that simple. If you have Jesus, well, God is with you all the time, isn't it? That's your answer. To have Jesus, you have an answer to every issue you face. And this is what Jesus offers us. The grace of God for every situation Because God is now with us in Christ. The question we have to ask ourselves is, have we truly received this grace of God? And if we have, are we trusting in the grace of God? Well, that brings us to the final observation this evening. Because how do we receive this? Well, we receive it by faith, don't we? We receive it by faith. The question you have to ask yourself again is, why has... Jesus granted this woman a request. The answer, of course, is that Jesus has done it because he's full of grace. That's true. At the same time, Jesus has done it because she has faith. Grace demands faith. In fact, faith is the gift of grace. 
Where grace, where grace is, there will be faith as well. Because it's a gift from God. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10. Look at verse 29 then. Jesus recognizes our faith. Look at verse 21. And he said to her, we read this, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Matthew 15, verse 28 adds for us that Jesus expressed surprise at our faith. You can see that in Matthew 15, 28. Because it says there, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. In other words, the purpose of this story is to show us that Jesus gives grace to the undeserving, yes, and we receive this grace by true faith in Jesus. So the question is, what does faith look like? Well, just study this passage. Because in this woman, we see what faith is. We see that true faith pursues Jesus. She's pursuing Jesus. She hasn't gone to anyone else. She's come to Jesus. So faith is located in Jesus. It is coming to Jesus. We see also that true faith perseveres. It doesn't just trust one off. It goes on to trust. How do we know? Because this woman does not allow our pagan background, our gender, our cultures, or even the disciples to keep away from Jesus. Even the tough parable of Jesus just strengthens our resolve to go and cry out to him more. This is what true faith is. It leans only on Jesus. It perseveres on Jesus. And it leans only on his grace. She makes it clear that she's bringing nothing to the table except faith in Jesus. Nothing at the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross of Christ I cling. As I said, her face says to Jesus, even though I am a dog, I am your dog. Even though I am a sinner, I am your sinner. I am in my gracious master's presence. This is what true faith looks like. This is the faith that Jesus wants us to have in him today. And this faith grows, isn't it? We can say more about our faith. It's growing. Every step, every challenge is growing. You see it more clear, I think, when you read the account in Matthew. When our faith grows and matures to the point that Jesus uh, commends our faith. And some people have commented that what's going on with this woman actually is death to self. As the story evolves, as we go through that, she's dying all the time to herself until her faith blossoms. This is the the faith. This is what true faith looks like. It's growing. It's maturing. Trusting. Always trusting in Jesus. And the question you have to ask yourself this evening, first of all, is that do you have faith in Jesus? Is this your faith? And secondly, is your faith growing? Because true faith grows. I recently watched a movie uh, called Hostiles. I don't know if you've seen it. It is a Western drama which centers around the battle-hardened U.S. officer Captain Joseph. He's played by, the, he's played by Christian Bale, right? Veronica has seen it. And in the movie, uh, this officer... Uh, Captain Joseph has been ordered to take his mortal enemy, the, Chi- the, Chi- the Chi- Cheyenne war chief, Yellowhawk, uh, and his family back to the tribal lands in Montana. Uh, that's the plot. So the whole journey of him taking his bitter enemy back into these tribal lands is uh, full of suffering, 
full of bloodshed, full of death. You see so much suffering there. But in the middle of these horrific scenes, there are some revealing conversations within this. Because among the people in this group that are afflicted is a stricken widow, Rosary Quaid, who has just seen her family massacred. She's a, she would see herself as a Christian. And so we have an interesting conversation in the film. Uh, there's a brief pause in the terror in the film when Mrs. Quaid sees uh, Captain Joseph reading the Bible. So she asks him, Do you believe in the Lord, Joseph? The captain says to her, Yes, I do, ma'am. Yes, I do. But he's been blind to what's going on out here for a long time. To which Mrs. Quaid replies, Remember, she's a nominal Christian. She would see herself as a Christian. She says, I can see what you mean. I can see what you mean. It's a powerful moment in the film because Joseph confesses his struggle with believing in God and Mrs. Quaid was just going through horrific stuff which we can't mention, very horrific our, our family has been brutally murdered but there's more that follows that he's struggling also to reconcile God's goodness with the pain in our lives and as I watched it I thought to myself this struggle is how many of us live, the, the, the Captain Joseph struggle. He believes in God, but he, does, he thinks God doesn't see the situation. And many of us are like that. We believe in God, but we don't think God sees our work. God sees us in our places of work, or God doesn't see us in our family situation, or God doesn't see us in our church situation. So our belief now becomes just intellectual. We believe in a God. We do believe in him, 66 books, but he's far removed from the practical realities of our life. We, we won't be as bored to say, as Captain Philip puts it, he's blind to my situation. But everything about the way we manage our lives shows that's what we believe. We believe God is not interested. And so what we do is we, we do what Captain Joseph does in the film. The whole film is just Captain Joseph relying on his inner strength. His hero actually is Julius Caesar, isn't it? He says, the bravest man I know. And many Christians live like that. We do not draw strength from the God we allegedly believe in. Rather, we draw strength from ourselves, not from him who bleeds grace on the cross for us. But the Bible calls us to draw strength from him by faith. The French divine, my favorite French divine, Mestrozat, says this, Faith is the hand by which we lay hold of Jesus. By faith, we are not only permitted to put the finger into the print of the nails and to thrust the hand into his side, but by faith, our very souls find refuge in his wounds. True faith, Mr. Zad says, is not merely believing in God or having evidence that he has died for us to, 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 to put our fingers into his nails. No, true refuge is finding refuge in his very wounds total. To live in his wounds, so to speak. True faith is not a one-off therefore. It grows in finding strength beneath the cross of shame. It is trusting that Jesus 
carries the scars of grace for me. That's what true faith does. True faith remembers that even now our Lord Jesus is standing in heaven carrying the very scars that have saved you. So how can when Jesus looks at his scars ever forget you? Because he bears those scars for you. And true faith says, look, Jesus is not blind to my situation. So I must go to him like this woman. I must lean on his grace. I will pursue Jesus in my prayers like this woman. I will keep focusing on him. I will not let my troubles keep me from Jesus. Whether I will let my troubles escort me deeper into his wounds on the cross. Deeper in resting on the cross. Resting in his presence. That's what true faith is. And if you are a follower of Jesus, keep going to him in prayer. Look, you may not get what you want. But you get more of Jesus. You get more of Jesus. And is that what you want? Don't you want more of Jesus? Well, a true believer says yes. A true believer wants more of Jesus. Not more of stuff. If we, we pray for stuff, but if we don't get that, we're all right. Because through the process of praying for that stuff, we have gotten more of Jesus. That's what we are after, isn't it? More of him. Because Jesus is our priceless treasure. To have Jesus is to have him carrying every burden for us. Well, may the Lord help each one of us to have complete faith in the grace of Jesus in every desperate situation this coming week and beyond. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing and sensational grace. We thank you for all that the Lord Jesus has done for us, laying down his life for our sins. And we pray, Lord, that we would increasingly, like this woman of Tyre, persevere, grow in looking to you. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us, as mistress has said, to find refuge in your wings, to look only to the cross and the cross alone, and to stay there. In Jesus' name, amen.